The preacher Kent Hughes gives the account of a congregation in Dallas, Texas that split apart after a bitter and public dispute. Both sides of the church went to the local judge to try to get him to handle the case, but he ordered that it go back to the ecclesiastical court within that particular church's denomination. That court proceeded with an investigation and ultimately assigned the property to one of the two groups, and a local newspaper caught wind of the matter and published the court's findings. Apparently, this dispute went all the way back to a church supper where an elder in the church had been served a smaller piece of ham than a child who was seated next to him. Now, when you hear a story like that, it's hard to know whether to laugh or to cry. And you think to yourself, surely a congregation would not be split by a piece of ham. But if you've been around the church long enough, then you know that whatever threats the church faces from the outside, there is an even greater threat within. And that is the threat of disunity. It's what Paul is addressing here in Philippians chapter 2, and it's a threat that we just assume ignore because the threat of disunity brings into focus two very unflattering truths about ourselves. First, while you might be able to say in earnest, I would never allow a piece of ham to come between me and my brother, the fact remains there's something broken within all of us. Something, well, maybe it's a root of bitterness. Maybe it's the weed of jealousy. Maybe it's the full-grown flower of pride. It takes different forms in every person, but for all of us, there is something broken in here which the devil will gladly exploit in order to inject within the church the poison of disunity. It's to our great peril that we ignore this unflattering fact about ourselves. And the second unflattering truth that the threat of disunity brings into focus is that we don't tend to be very, well, spiritually sophisticated sometimes. Uh, what do I mean? I mean the devil has been using the same playbook for thousands of years, and we're still surprised by it. He makes his way into the church. He injects the poison of disunity, and we're like, I didn't see that coming. That came from out of nowhere. No. The devil has been using the same playbook for millennia. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that his playbook comes with a no surprises guarantee. And yet we're still surprised by it. So the perennial threat of disunity is one that we don't like to face because it's not very flattering. But Paul, Paul is on to the devil's tricks. Paul has read the devil's playbook. And so his plea to the church in Philippi is a plea for holy unity. Now, this church in Philippi, it actually brings to mind our own church, and not just because of the similarities of names, no, but because it's a church that has a lot going for it. There's a lot in this church in Philippi for Paul to celebrate and commend. And friends, just in case you hadn't noticed, God is doing great things in this community. Now, this community is not perfect. It's not without its need for constant renewal and reform. But friends, this church is a gift 
and we need each other. I had a church history professor. He was a Lutheran pastor, and he was kind of an ornery old fella, kind of a glass half full sort of kind of guy. And one day in class, he said to us, he said, hey, you all know what the church is like? He said, no, sir. What's the church like? He said, the church is like Noah's Ark. We said, okay. He said, yeah, the storm's got to be pretty bad on the outside in order to, to stand the stench on the inside. Now, that was kind of a pessimistic view of the church, but, but the fact remains, we need each other. We need each other. This church is a gift. We are a privileged people. We are living in a season of blessing from God, and God alone is the one who's making it happen. But what Paul knows, and what we need to know, is that the enemy, the devil, is perfectly predictable. We know his favorite play, disunity quarreling, acrimony. And that's why Paul provides the means by which we, the people of God, can ward off disunity and thereby grow from strength to strength into the church that God means for us to be. He begins here in chapter 2 with a series of if-innies. He writes, so if there is any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, when Paul begins this sentence with the word if, that's not because he's unsure. No, no, he's using the word if here as to say, if as is certainly the case. In other words, what Paul is doing here is a bit like the classic gag that you would see in an old-fashioned cartoon or slapstick comedy. Somebody on stage passes out, and so what happens next? Someone comes on stage with a bucket of water. They splash it on the person. They begin slapping them back and forth. That's a bit of what Paul is doing here for the church in Philippi. Hey, 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 wake up. Have you forgotten? Have you fallen asleep to the reality of what God has done in your life? Have you become unconscious to the encouragement that's yours in Christ? The comfort that you experienced in His love. The joy of participation in the Spirit. The affection and sympathy of the Father. It's as if Paul is going, wake up you Philippians. Wake up to what God has done and is doing in your midst and in your lives. Do not take for granted the gift of the church. Friends, the church is a lot like mom. You know, it's easy to take mom for granted because you know that mom is always going to be there. And so you think, well, I can, I can put mom off. She's not going anywhere. But if you keep that up for long... I remember learning this lesson in, church, in, in college, rather. Mom called up. She left a voicemail. I thought, well, I'll, I'll get to that eventually. A couple of days go by. Mom calls and leaves another voicemail. I say, well, I'll, I'll call her back, you know, when I get around to it. A couple of days go by. Mom calls again, and you can tell in the tone of her voice that things are not going very well. In fact, financial sanctions are probably not far behind. So while it's true that so long as mom is among the quick, mom will be there for you, but you take her for granted at your own peril. Friends, it's easy to take God's gifts for granted, especially the gift of the church. 
We think, well, the church will always be there. And while it's true that the church of Jesus Christ as a whole, worldwide, will prevail come hell or high water, that promise is no guarantee for any individual congregation. And what we have here in this particular congregation at this particular time is a gift. It's something special. And we take this gift for granted at our peril. We take the church's unity for granted at our own peril. So having splashed some cold, refreshing water on the faces of the Philippians in verse 1, Paul proceeds in verse 2 to them, admonish them to attend to this unity, to, to care for it, to pay attention to it. Complete my joy, he writes. That is my joy in what God is doing in your midst, my joy in what is commendable in you. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Being of one mind, having the same love. This is the twofold defensive strategy against the devil's favorite play. And friends, all of us, we all have a responsibility, each and every one of us, for the unity of this congregation. So we need to understand what it means to be of the same mind and to have the same love. First, complete my joy by being of the same mind. On a Wednesday night in the summertime, if you happen to look out into the Charleston Harbor, you will see that there's a regatta taking place every Wednesday night. Some of you participate in that regatta. Now, this is not the kind of regatta for those little one-man boats. No, it's a regatta for the sorts of vessels that require an entire crew to operate competitively. And by some cruel and strange twist of events, I ended up on one of those boats when I was a kid. And I'm here to tell you, once you set foot on that vessel, you quickly learn that whatever thoughts, emotions, questions, ideas, whatever it is that you brought on board with you, all that stuff better be safely tucked and stowed away for the duration of your cruise. You are given a job, and your purpose over the course of that race is to do your job to the utmost of your ability for the single purpose of beating the tar out of your opponents in a sportsmanlike manner. For the duration of the regatta, nothing else matters. You have one purpose. Now, thankfully, the church is not quite that intense. When you come onto this campus to take your place in this community, be it for worship or Bible study or a fellowship supper, you're not told to pack away your thoughts, your concerns, your hopes, your struggles, your dreams. No, you're encouraged to bring those things with you. But... But, like those sailing vessels I just described to you, it is imperative that we be of one mind about our ultimate and singular goal. Our primary goal as a people, as the church, our primary goal is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And everything else, be it our own personal agendas or even our hopes and dreams for this community, all things must be placed at the feet of our primary mission as a church. 
to proclaim the good news that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son to the end that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The sharing of that news, the living out of that news, that is our primary purpose. Many of you have been blessed by the ministry of the pastor Tim Keller who died back in May. One of the things I noticed very early on in Tim Keller's teachings and uh, preaching and, and writing and all that, this constant refrain, it was his emphasis on the fact that the Christian faith exists, the church exists, because of a piece of news. That is, news you could publish in a newspaper, news you could post online. It's the news, the good news, that God loves this world so much that He sent His Son to die on the cross to save us. If we are not of one mind about this, then friends, disunity will not be far behind. If we lose sight of the primacy of that news, if we are not of one mind that all things must be placed at the feet of that news, in the service of that news, as an outgrowth of that news, again, then disunity will not be far behind. And while it might not be a, a fight over a piece of ham, it'll be some squabble about the color of the flowers or the temperature of the church, or the volume of the music, or the type of outreach mission we're doing. It's not that these things don't all matter. Some of them matter a great deal. But they are not the gospel. They are in support of the gospel. They are the fruit of the gospel. They are an outgrowth of the gospel, but they are not the gospel. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, Paul writes. Friends, have you been tempted to elevate some aspect of ministry or some personal preference or, or maybe even a smoldering gripe over and above our common goal to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ? The first defense against the devil's disunity is a church that is of one mind that the good news of Jesus Christ is the main thing. The second defense against disunity is a church that possesses, or better yet, is indwelled by the same love. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by having the same love. And then Paul spells out in verse 3 what, what that love actually looks like. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then Paul goes on to recite a little poem. Some think it's an early Christian hymn that expresses how Jesus displayed this very same love by his own life. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of, here it is, a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Love marked by humble service. This is the second defense 
against the devil's favorite play of disunity. Now, we need to be clear about what this humility is and what it isn't because there's a lot of confusion about humility. True humility is not self-hatred. True humility is not self-loathing. Friends, do you know the difference between conviction and condemnation? Condemnation is the work of the devil. Condemnation is that voice that says, I, I am worthless. I can't be forgiven. I'm awful. I'm unlovable. Friends, that is the voice of the devil. And if you have allowed that voice to come and take root in your heart, you, you need to, before you come forward for communion, to confess that to the Lord. Lord, I've been listening to the voice of the enemy. I want to hear your voice. Forgive me. If, on the other hand, you hear the voice of conviction, son, daughter, there's a root of bitterness in here. There's a spirit of unholy inferiority in here. There's a hint of spiritual snobbery in here. And I want you to turn away from it. I want you to welcome my spirit in so that I can begin a healing work in you. If that's the voice you hear, then that is probably the voice of the Holy Spirit. One of the most loving aspects of the Spirit's ministry is his voice of conviction. So to return to humility, true humility never comes from a place of self-hatred or self-condemnation. That's the work of the devil. No, true humility comes from a place of conviction. I'm a broken sinner in need of God's saving. I'm a work in progress just like everybody else. And if Jesus could come down from heaven and leave behind all that was his and come to earth in the form of the man to serve the likes of me, then who am I to refuse his call to serve others? Who am I to reject his call to lower himself in order to lift others up? Friends, God wants to bring you to a place where you are so sure of his love and forgiveness where you are so sure of your position as his son or daughter that from that place of strength, you can willingly lay yourself down to serve others in humility, having the same love of Jesus Christ. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Friends, we know the devil's playbook. It's disunity. But we also know God's defense against this. It's that twofold strategy of being of the same mind and having the same love. May God the Holy Spirit empower us to do our part, to play our role to foster and guard the unity of this community, being of one mind in the gospel and having the same love of our Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is only by your gracious gift that we are able to experience the blessing of this community. Forgive us for taking it for granted. In the name of your Son, Jesus, who showed us through his life and death the way of true love, please send your Holy Spirit to fall afresh on us that we might be of one mind and indwell with the same love to your great glory, O Father. Amen.